episode 49, Marinus Peterson. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Patterson. Enjoy. Good day, folks. On today's episode, I speak with Marinus Peterson from Kilowatt Coaching. And I had a great chat with Marinus. We we talked on a ton of subjects related to performance um, and also endurance performance. We discussed the psychological aspects. We discussed meditation. We discussed coaching. We discussed various physiological factors um, also scraping adaptations from various methods that are kind of less traditional. Um, and does it make sense? What is What does it make sense to be used for possibly? Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed this conversation. It was just really easy to chat with Marinus. We um, really hit it off. It was, it was great um, getting to hear things from his point of view. Um, even, you know, some things that um, I really don't talk a lot about. Um, or haven't discussed much in the podcast before. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed the episode. And if you want to check out any of his uh, stuff, or if you want to consult with him for coaching or, or whatever it is, I'll leave all the links uh, for Marinus in the show notes to his Instagram and, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this episode and uh, we'll catch you later. So we were just about to get into, I was going to ask you, how did you walk down the path of saying exercise physiology is something I want to be a part of? Like I want to be a part of whether it's the education process or maybe the research process, obviously now you're coaching, but how did that start? Because when we're probably 12, 13, I don't think any kid's really thinking, Hey, I want to do exercise <laughs> physiology, right? You don't even know what it is. Yeah. 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 Well, so I guess I, I, I always kind of fancied myself some kind of athlete. Like, so like first sport I did half seriously was tennis and then did athletics and represented Wales and the little country that I live in. It's like a junior and stuff. Mm-hmm. And internationals and cross country and track, track athletics. And then I kind of got like, I was quite like academic at school. I was good at like, all sort of academic subjects. And so I kind of got pushed down the route of doing well, like yeah maths and science and when I first went to university I was actually doing like straight maths mm. and and it wasn't like I quite liked maths and I still quite like maths but it wasn't like a, a passion for me in the same way as as my sport was so yeah I kind of felt like society pressure kind of pushed me towards doing that and and I went I, yeah I did straight maths when I was first at uni but then I sort of started cycling and racing and sort of realised I had quite a lot of potential and I wanted to push that on. But then also, and then also like, I, because I was in, you must know about Loughborough and kind of the, yeah. the calibre of the research that's coming out of there. And a lot of my friends, like I find more of my friends were like people who studied sports science and more of the people I found interesting studied sports science. Um, and and I thought like, and, and, and I was just spending all my like, time kind of looking at looking into myself like physiology and nutrition and how to make myself better as a cyclist and so I just thought it this just seems crazy that I'm I'm doing like maths which I 
don't like that much and and I'm doing all this like research into like sports science just because I'm interested in it mm-hmm. surely it makes sense to actually just take that on as a degree so I, I left maths after or just before the end of that first year and started studying sports science and just just graduated from that recently yeah so do you think the process of do you think if you would have directly went into sports science that you would have been kind of just as happy or 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 had the same perspective do you think spending some time doing math and wrapping your head around those concepts or even just exposing yourself to things outside of sports science do you think it helped you or do you think it was kind of a waste of time or do you, how do you, how do you view that i th- i think it, i think it does i think it has yeah i mean i always like to think that cuz what you've done is what you've done you can't the way you can't change it so yeah. I like to still see the positives and all of everything but i think i think it has yeah and like i i, I did like a lot of about maths it's just that i don't like to do it all day every day yeah. you know what i mean yeah. yeah 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 it's like i just didn't want that like a couple of hours a day of doing maths not too bad but like all day every day and i'm not leaving the time for for what i was actually in, more interested in that was kind of more more of it and then i, I don't know how much how much you've gone into maths yourself but I, I I did yeah I did maths physics further maths A levels, and and I did like a lot of the stuff in that. But then it just starts like, like say analysis when you start going into that, it just starts going like wild. It's like mm. it's just it's way off what you ever thought maths was, mm. and like it just like a proof, and it'll start with like if there's some f epsilon is greater than zero, then assume some a greater than b such that delta and that's just the first line and then they just be going on and you're like this is this is not what i signed up for (laughs) yeah yeah no you're you're right like i think having especially physics i think is is difficult as physics is for many people to wrap their head around even on a basic level introductory level it's super valuable just in your everyday life just understanding the physics behind driving your car and why your car might lose control right or with cycling there's plenty of things that physics can especially cycling cycling more than most sports and and i hear you on that there's like this introductory level which is kind of like yeah it's hard to wrap your head around but you get a grasp of it and you're like okay this is not bad and then you start to veer into third year courses fourth year courses and you're looking at some of the the content you're like okay i don't see how this is possible like it's 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 a huge cognitive task to spend your day trying to solve problems and wrap your head around concepts like that yeah well like like i suppose it's it's kind of just i've i've always wanted something that that like i can just give myself like wholesomely to and like mm-hmm. Know, dedicate all of my thought and passion to I've always kind of craved that and then and and sort of me, me as an athlete and I just kind of like see that as like a sign n equals one scientific experiment of like you know how far how good can I get how far can I push my physiology mm-hmm. and it's weird because like in some ways I sort of would find like I'm thinking like the biggest race I've ever won versus like just doing a really good power test like in some ways there's 
like I generally like yeah winning the race is the biggest satisfaction but in some ways like actually kind of following through a process and then seeing like I've, I've managed to manipulate my physiology that much mm. there's almost kind of a different kind of satisfaction that you get from that that you don't get from winning a race mm. so I guess like yeah I've, I'm just really fascinated by this project of like how far can you push and an individual's physiology how can you manipulate that mm. and then it's also and then I'll yeah it's, it's like actually doing stuff as well like I'm 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 not good at just being all in my head all the time <laughs> yes. the actual like yeah. doing shit really yeah and I yeah I guess that's why I like sports science because it's yeah it's, it's got that it's got something tangible you're actually actually attaching it to it's, it's not purely abstract although like I, I still think yeah, like a sort of a basic understanding of maths and physics, just like you say, it really helps with everyday life and, and understanding sports science. Like you think some some people, are, they, yeah, they'll, they'll train to power all the time and you ask them what actually is power? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. if you just realise that it's just yeah. work done per unit time, yeah. like energy transferred from one form to another, you're, chemical energy in in you from the food you eat to the pedals when you start thinking about it like that you're like oh well that makes sense that i have to eat to be able to pedal harder mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like yes. just like basic sort of stuff like that i think it helps or or even just like thinking if like electricity is like amps and you got amps and watts mm-hmm. like that new and it's like yeah, you got your like amps is like your cadence and and volts is like your gear and and that that yes, that's, that's like helps with a yeah, basic level of understanding, doesn't it? So um, yeah. and and if you don't have yeah that very basic level, it make interpreting sports science a bit more difficult. Yeah, and I think the many of the constructs that people come in under within sports science haven't had a lot of rigorous thought behind them i don't think because people just assume because from one of the perspectives that i came from is weight weight training interventions resistance training interventions for sports performance and what i generally see is this blanket sets and rep schemes being thrown out there and really we're just looking at tonnage this is kind of what we're looking at tonnage and intensity level because You'll hear cyclists or runners say, so it's got to be heavyweights. And, but there's, there's very different things going on there in terms of physics when, when two different people are lifting 80% of their one rep max. Yeah. Uh, and what good. are the intentions behind what they're doing? Because most people, when they lift weights, their intention is not to produce as much watts as possible. If we'll yeah. use watts as a, as, a, as, a, as a measure, right? If we're using barbell velocity, it's to lift the weight. And those are two different intentions. And when you start to understand the difference in the physics behind just lifting a barbell and getting your reps done versus lifting it with maximal intention or lifting it as slow as possible, there's different adaptations that you're going to yield there. And a lot of the times because sports science gets kind of condensed and then expands and we just use this kind of singular model we don't think about the rigor behind exactly what lever we're trying to pull i think sometimes i think that's can be some of the reasons and why we 
we see results the way we see results. I don't know about you, like when you look at a type of, 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 of new research out on, on, on the journals or PubMed, when you look through the methods, I think there's a lot lost there sometimes. We just take for granted that a watt is a watt. Yeah. But yeah. What, what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I, I think because, say, I, I think that I was saying this to Coley that, like, with, with, say, nutrition, I think we've gotten a lot further in our understanding of, like, what works and versus with, like, physiology of training, like, we're still very there's a lot we know and there's like a lot that we really don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot because it, it's much harder with training to actually like quantify what the objective is. Mm-hmm. Whereas with like nutrition, you can quite, you can quite precisely and clearly define that. And that's why I think like VO2 max has been used so often as like a marker of performance. It's just because that's a protocol that labs are set up to do. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, it's sort of easy to measure. Well, this is it's part, yeah, it's possible to to quantify and measure. So I think, yeah, that 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 could allow like, yeah, training study interventions to to be a bit more progressive if they kind of could think more carefully about what they're actually trying to like measure an improvement in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and 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 some of that is like practicality. Of, there's there is some stuff that is just really difficult or even impossible to measure in a lab scenario because mm-hmm. like w- like yeah i guess the objective of a lot of endurance sport is to be really good at the end of a really long race mm-hmm. and there's not many ways of testing that other than getting someone to do a really long race yeah. so yeah i think that that's that's a huge limitation of research at the moment yeah nutrition does does highlight that quite a bit especially with a lot of the research i've been exposed to with nutrition is and on the other side genetics when you start combining those factors alone just those factors not environment not and that's the thing like and science i think sometimes the what's taken for granted or the misconception is that these variables are tightly isolated and for example like (laughs) One field, if you ever spend some time trying to wrap your head around physiotherapy, is yeah. if you look at some of these physiotherapy interventions, depending on how someone's axial skeleton is organized and their appendicular skeleton is kind of representing, yeah. is going to make a big difference on outcomes, right? We know that if someone has a massive anterior pelvic tilt, right? versus someone that has a massive posterior pelvic tilt right yeah if we go and intervene and say hey we're going to do nordic hamstring curls to prevent hamstring injuries on the pitch whatever it is soccer rugby anything we're not going to learn anything because we're not measuring anterior pelvic tilt we're not measuring the organization of the spine and i think a lot of the times when people pull out and say well we know that nordics are going to reduce hamstring injury maybe for 50% of the population, they will massively reduce hamstring injury. Yeah, yeah. But the, that other 50%, it massively does not. It's the complete and opposite. When, and then all mean. you'd get from the study is that, like, on average, no effect. Yes. If you're just looking at means and you've not, not measured the... Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and 
it's it's the variables that I think one thing that and I'm not saying I've I've got a, a great mind for for the literature or anything like that, but one thing in my kind of humble perspective and, and view is I think understanding and no one can understand this fully is the the variables that can't be accounted for. And I think when we say, yeah, we're taking it into consideration, like we didn't know the training volume and we didn't know like the previous, tra- those are very, like, those are just minute in the sea of a million and one yeah. things. So I don't know. It's funny because well, after the, I look- the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's the yeah. thing is like, not every study reports are the single subjects performance markers, but whenever you do get that chance to look into the individuals, trying to wrap your head around the outliers. Yeah. You know, th- you I think that's I think important. I've been wor- working through your podcast and I, I think I heard you and one of them saying that like rather than discarding these like out the massive outliers, I actually think like, well, actually that that guy's really interesting. Yes. Like why why has he responded so well to like restricted carbohydrate intake or yeah like being dehydrated or yes. whatever it is like why why has he responded so well then you can look at that person and think like what's different about them that's making them respond responded like that and yeah rather than just thinking oh they're they're relevant they're an outlier yeah and, and i mean like ahead. elite elite sports people like they it's kind of they're kind of like what f1 is to like to, to the general population aren't they you can mm. seeing like how far can you push the limits mm-hmm. like eventually that's gonna trickle down into helping our understanding for you know like general and patient populations things like that yeah um, yeah i think i think the other thing too is one thing i spent i talked about this on a podcast i think it was actually with the podcast i just released with marco yeah human factors so when you when you do avalanche work or or you're doing any type of guiding in the in the mountains, right? Mm-hmm. You generally through some of the the education process you go through human factors and it's actually a huge portion of study, right? Like it's yeah. people spend massive massive amounts of time trying to understand human factors cuz at the end of the year you get this book with the accident report, accident report. So it goes through why basically whatever information they can glean from the process that led to someone dying or being seriously injured, right? And the decisions that made that, but not only the decisions that made that, what was the environment previous to that? What were the human factors in play that led to that? And trying Mm -hmm. to wrap your head around human factors, because I think you probably understand this as well as me is you have two professional athletes sitting in front of you and they both have the equal amount. They both have whatever, let's just say 16 hours a day to manage their work. If you gave those two individuals, let's just say there is one best training plan in the world. We know it. There's this one training plan that works, right? Just physiologically the best for everyone. Psychologically, the psychological aspects of one individual liking variation more than the other individual, one person liking more higher intensity, all those psychological factors. Like I'm sure you've seen this play out in, in your own coaching and in your own teammates yeah. over the years is like, yeah, man, it true. throws people out to lunch. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this, this is what I, I always sort of think with my coaching is that like, like, 
consistency is sort of the, the most important pillar in, mm. in training so like some sometimes like deviating from what you think might be the most like physiologically optimal like training session to do something that they actually enjoy more like mm-hmm. doing a chain gang doing a group ride mm-hmm. when you actually think that they'll be better off doing threshold intervals but like they're more likely to turn up <laughs> if, they, yes. if, they, if, they're, if they if they can go to a group ride and even just like doing something like that occasionally to keep their their interest and their motivation higher like mm-hmm. in the long run that's actually going to mean that going to train more they're going to train harder they're going to be more consistent mm-hmm. so it, it is always that balance isn't it with that like that's why i try, kind of try to have a, a holistic perspective mm-hmm. so actually do you do you i was just speaking with some new client yesterday and he was talking about how he really doesn't like taking rest days mm-hmm. and i and i was just trying to think like he says yeah i just feel like crap if i don't take a rest and i was trying to think like that I, I can I can relate to that because I I always like to do something. I've kind of got this restless. I can quite easily get a sort of restless mind, always thinking about what's next or like what what have I done? What could I have done better before? And and what I've really found has helped me is is, is mindfulness and meditation. Mm-hmm. And it's that's something that I've been trying to use with more of my athletes as well to to try and like calm that that busy mind and that constant stream of thoughts because mm-hmm. then to like just make you actually feel like i'm actually right here right now i'm okay mm-hmm. and and i think that that's another thing that i really find helps like ground people and gives them that like ability to yeah make better decisions in their training train harder when they need to train and then when they need to rest like be okay mm-hmm. with resting yeah is, is that something you've you've looked into or you practiced yourself or yeah i've spent a long time around mindfulness and and meditation and and various different forms of meditation Mm. and uh, spent a long time trying to understand the the literature behind it and the effects on the brain and and yeah cognitive processing and all these different things and i think meditation is probably one of the simplest not easy tools there is and finding someone that like the, the, the problem with mindfulness is i would say mindfulness is a harder practice to be consistent with than training bar none yeah. times 10 even if you give someone a 30 hour training week yeah trying to get someone to be consistent with a 10 minute daily mindfulness practice or meditation practice is so hard so what i've come to learn with trying to intervene with mindfulness over the years is trying to hide it and disguise it in different forms whether that's i'm going to have you focus on your inhale and exhale on your 10 minute ftp work or your 15 minute threshold set and i don't i don't even want you to look at your watch i just want you to focus on your breath and use your breath as your threshold and it's like yeah i'm gonna lose some adaptations from not being staring at my heart rate monitor for every two seconds you know what i mean like you hear all this stuff behind it like it's not gonna but realistically getting athletes to learn how to enhance their ability to focus enhance their ability to intercept basically take in the information that's going on with inside the body and understand it there's like, and I talk about it sometimes and it kind of gets lost on people. You're like, oh yeah. But I'm like, there's, there's, there's various levels 
to understanding interoception. Mm -hmm. And every time you hit a new level, you're dumbfounded. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't think there was this level. Kind of like if you've done a test when you're when you're starting off is you go through these levels of testing where you're like, oh, I didn't think I could dig that deep. And then you dig deeper and you're like, whoa, I didn't think this existed. Yeah. And go, you go, you pass that and you're like, wow, where, where is, where does it stop? And I think trying to mask mindfulness in many different ways, because I, I'm not convinced that sitting down and focusing your, on your breath is, is much different than running or cycling or even weight training and focusing on your breath. I don't think, I know there's obviously massive differences there. What's going on with the processing in the brain. But I yeah. think the overall effect and the ability to be consistent is is just just huge for that because it's a it's it's a it's literally a it's almost like cheating. Your ability to yeah. focus is almost like cheating. Yeah. If you if you hone it to a high degree. Because I I think that is kind of a big reason of why I actually enjoy riding the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, like just sort of my my perfect day is pretty much just going out for a five-hour endurance ride and on my own and and just like sort of being in being mindful I guess when I'm while I'm doing it because like say what I find is if I'm on the turbo and you know quite often then I listen to I listen to podcasts I listen to stuff mm-hmm. but then when I finish I, I still feel like I need to go for a walk because <laughs> I, I, I still need that outside time like time for my head yeah and and like when I just you know, when I get back from a ride in fact good time to discuss this because I, I i broke i broke my ankle um eight weeks ago now yeah. and and so the past two weeks i've just been on the turbo and today was like my first ride back on the road and like what that does for you like mentally is just it's so different <laughs> it isn't so much better it, you actually feel like you've had a been refreshed like had a, had a reset which yeah. don't don't feel like you get when you're you're, you're inside and like so I yeah I, I sort of find it strange when people always always need to be listening to something they always need to have like some kind of entertainment and because I, I think yeah like you said when when actually whilst doing endurance sport can be a, a really good opportunity to practice mindfulness yeah um, yeah I, I I think one of the things on that too is as a society, whether Europe, North America, the amount of information that we're exposing ourselves to on a daily basis yeah. is insane. Yeah. And, it's and too much. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Like, even if we were to go back 100 years, 100 years, 100 years, and, and, and pinpoint every century and look at the information that we've been processing on a daily basis now, yes, even though you're you're sitting there and you're not doing, you're still processing tons of information, whether mm. the, the visual, or the audio. But I think people forget that for a system to be enhanced, it does have to essentially have some reprieve somewhere. It's yeah. just like we, if we were trying to get better at cycling or lifting weights or running, we wouldn't slow drip cycling literally from the <laughs> second that we woke up to the the you second that we went like, down. Had- pedaling at 50 watts all night and all day would you <laughs> exactly yeah. Um, and yes low level activities is is absolutely fantastic for for health and mitochondrial function 
all these things. But I just try to illuminate how much processing they're doing from the second that they wake up. Yeah. The second that they wake up, it's literally an information stream of processing what's going on in Russia, what's going on with my FTP, what's going on with my heart rate, what's going on with my HRV, what's going on with work, what's going on yeah. with my sister. And then they go to sleep and then they literally turn off the phone and go to lay down. And it's like, that was the day. And that's just massive, dude. That's massive. Yeah. That's a chronic state. And I think once people start to find time to like, even find 10, 15 minutes to pull themselves outside of that and just focus on nothing, their ability to focus gets just so much better. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I definitely like uh, relate as well to what you said about it being really difficult to be consistent with the doing mindfulness. Because yeah. like, even though I, I know really well that whenever I do it, I feel better, I feel happier, mm-hmm. I do everything better, and my training is better, I still can quite often like slip out of it. Mm-hmm. And it's often only like when I'm injured and I can't train as much. And then it becomes really difficult to actually just sort of get through the day. Yeah. I, I find I then like go back to it and I'm like, oh wow this is this really helps <laughs> yeah and then that carries through to when i get back training again and hopefully now like yeah i can stay consistent with it but yeah because yeah, it does just make me make me feel better but i think that's that's a really neat idea you've got about a way to kind of sneak it into training just like almost like yeah prescribing the warm-up like 10 minutes of focused breath work or yeah yeah that's that's a really neat idea yeah I think the other thing too is, is like, I don't, I don't know how like you look at coaching. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. A lot of, it's funny because you talk about nutrition earlier, stuff like this. What yeah. we know about with intervening with, with, with diet and, and, and nutrition and things like this is realistically the basis of it all is behavior change, behavior modification. Yeah. And that's a big thing with coaching that I feel like, I think we all get stuck sometimes and not that like we should be going out and getting a a doctorate in in psychology and sitting the, the athlete on the couch every time they come in, but understanding very intimately the resistance to various degrees of behavior change and understanding how to pull those levers ever so slightly, like, Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm sure you really had to try and scheme and understand how do I get the best out of this athlete without disrupting (laughs) their life? Like, how do I have them change some of the behaviors that I know will make them better without creating too much friction? Thoughts on that? Well, that's that's a real struggle because like, say, for example, I've got a lot of of people I've coached have had like full-time jobs, kids, family. Mm-hmm. And then and then they'll text you at like eight o'clock, like, oh, I haven't had time to do my session today. Just getting on the turbo now for my like two hour ride or even at like nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, like, this is not a good idea. <laughs> like yeah. prioritize your sleep. But then the other hand is like starts happening constantly, constantly. And then and, and that's when they get into a pattern of always kind of riding late at night. And this and they're like and, and they say they feel okay the next day. And and also, like, is that better than them just not riding at all? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. So yeah, that's just de- definitely a challenge. And a, a, another thing I've I've noticed is that yeah, and so this this person gave me <laughs> permission to share that 
they they kind of you you kind of get into a a pattern of of doing pretty much the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when you've got a consistent routine with your, your family and your work, people tend to get into doing the same, eating the same things every day, doing the same training every day or at least every day of the week, and and there being like little to no variation in that. Mm-hmm. And and it's like. Yeah, like I think it's it's just quite an easy pattern to fall into when you've not got anyone telling you actually you might benefit from trying this or mixing it up or having mm-hmm. having variation. And I think that's where like a coach is particularly useful because they can take that like zoomed out perspective and be like you've just done the same thing every day for twelve months. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely hard dealing with people with with family or demanding work careers is very. It's so it's so it's so intricate and so difficult to really not be banging your head against the wall and understanding is that the right decision? Is that the right yeah. decision? Because there really is no answer. And I think that's one thing that I've spent a lot of time trying to shift my efforts and understanding outside of the physiology of of sport and and training because understanding the factors that are are going to bring someone to the target the goal pace yes the physiology is important but realistically that's not the difficult part so why would i spend 90 percent of my effort trying to understand something that maybe might get me a portion of the results it depends on the person that that physiology aspect might be more important because they do have the time and it's always important, right? Like how you you distribute the training and try to match it to the individual. And I had this thought waking up from a dream this morning. And it was, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy because it just came to me in my head where I was like, so many coaches, like I, I just had this epiphany when I woke up. I don't know. I had crazy dreams last night. I hope I wasn't dreaming, <laughs> training the whole time because that's kind of sad. But the the massive amount of coaches that are, that are coaching based off of theory alone. Yeah. Theory alone is mind boggling to me. And I know cycling is much different because it's, it's much easier to get someone to go ahead and run an FTP test because it's something exciting. People right. like the metrics behind it, but a lot of other sports, it's not as clear cut yeah. easy, like running CrossFit, Olympic weightlifting, whatever it is, high rocks, swimming, you know, that, that culture of testing isn't as prevalent so what do you use kind of as your responses do you use testing do you use daily heart rate responses to to various intensities what are kind of the what is kind of the big picture view of how you look at an athlete's response to training even yourself what are what is it is it strictly power is it is it yeah i like sort of power heart rate and rpe i guess are your sort of key tools there and and seeing seeing if they're trending in the right direction mm. and and like yeah you can for example like i've heard a lot of people say with heat training that they found that there's nothing they can like definitely sort of pin it on mm-hmm. like that their their threshold's gone up their vo2 max has gone up all that they can say is that like their rpe is sort of sub-maximal yeah. at like at levels has, has definitely decreased mm-hmm. and and that's that. That's an example. Yes, yeah, you, you can't ignore. You can, you can see that it's worked. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's yeah. I guess like you're right that power and 
power and heart rate are pretty critical. Like that if you can see, yeah, if, if you're able to hold a certain power for longer or or do a higher power for a certain effort, you, something's working because mm-hmm. there's that you can't cheat that. Yeah. It can't happen by accident unless your power meter stops working, or which you know you do, do have to yeah be careful of. But um, yeah, it's like you know how, how how you've got to do something for long enough to to see if it's working or not. Equally, equally, like how how long can you carry carry on hammering something, it not working, and just be like, well, should be working because that's what the theory says. Yeah, point, <laughs> you've yes. got to say actually this yeah this is this, this not working but try something else and yeah. Um, yeah the other kind of thing that makes that really difficult is that like there's there's a there's a big gap and a delay in time between doing something and like getting the result mm-hmm. yeah. and and especially with like endurance training and building endurance with your the volume like trying to get people to understand that it's, it's not going to be a quick fix it's going to take months and years mm-hmm. and and like like i tried to say to them, pretty much in my killer coaching starter pack <laughs> is i tell them to save, save money on all their sports nutrition products because and just buy five kilo bags of maltodextrin <laughs> which works out at about three pence three cents per equivalent of one gel and then I say, like, yeah, you go for one five-hour ride. That's not going to change your physiology. You're not going to have more mitochondria. You're not going to have, like, greater capillary density. But by the time you finish that five-kilo bag of maltodextrin, come to a scoop 50 grams for each hour you're riding, you've ridden 100 hours by then. And by then, you will have more mitochondria. You will have greater capillary density. Your VO2 max will be higher. Threshold will be higher. And so it's like just putting a penny into a jar each day isn't it and realizing that it's not gonna not gonna happen quickly but you just gotta yeah keep on tapping away at it that's extremely powerful visual i really like that and that's i'm i'm, I'm gonna steal that from you whether it's whatever supplement <laughs> if it's so, sodium bicarb or whatever it is that athletes are, are uh, will be using but that's powerful is connecting that type of visualization for athletes i think is super important and whatever form that you're giving to the athlete like your landscape that you're passing down i think is so vital for not only adherence and 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 for them understanding okay well if it's the consistency that actually is going to make this work but also for the adaptation side i talk about this pretty much every other podcast is like having that athlete like the whole milkshake study i was i just went on Twitter this morning real quick and I looked through like three tweets and Alex Alex Hutchinson had posted like this is one of the studies that I, I look fondly on it's like probably one of my favorite studies it's the milkshake study with Aaliyah Crum I'm sure you heard yeah. of that one where it's like essentially it's the same milkshake for two different groups and they kind of split and randomize the groups so they give them this quote-unquote high-fat milkshake it's horrible it's, it's it's so bad for you. And then they give you the healthy version of the milkshake. And it's the same milkshake. And looking at the responses with, I believe it was leptin they measured. I believe leptin and some various other, maybe ghrelin. I know ghrelin was measured for sure, I think. Yeah. So oh, I think I've I think I've heard about this. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's been something that I think a lot of coaches have had their nose to for several years is like the athlete. Although I, I have heard people 
<laughs> interpret this how they want to and kind of yeah. thinking oh that means like i have to eat ice cream and yeah i want i think that's and, then, and, and it's like you can't you can't eat it doesn't mean you can eat more calories and lose weight <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes it might it might it might mean that if you think it's unhealthy your yeah. metabolic rate will increase by like three calories that day yeah it's not going to cancel out a tub of ice cream sort of thing. yes but yeah. yeah it's still good to be mindful of. it is and i think like the reason if you look at the cascade of events when individuals fall into a state of major depressive disorder or any of these things yeah that's all pers- a lot of that yes there's there's genetic factors yes there's environmental factors but a lot of that is perspective and how they're perceiving their environment and now yeah. you have this one person that could have completely different physiology and it's all based off of what he's doing in his head. And, and we know the differences between individuals with, with these severe major depressive disorders. Like there, there's, there's a massive shift in physiology. And yes, I think that comparing major depressive disorder to like an athlete that's healthy and happy. And, but I think even on the other spectrum of that is like, I see, I see huge differences in athletes that, especially when it's their job almost, right? They're spending. Yeah five hours on a bike a day or six hours or there's spending 20 hour training weeks 30 hour training weeks how you perceive that is going to dictate the chronic state that you are in and the chronic state that you are in is going to play a huge factor yeah in adaptation i I just i think it's it's glossed over slightly too much and like i don't know about you is is yeah trying to what i was just going to ask you actually is how how important do you think it is to get an athlete to understand why what they're doing might work? Because mm. I'm quite big on educate educating someone as to like why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. But obviously, depending on the person, you might go more or less into like the mechanisms. But yeah. for like, because I know that for me, like if I, if I understand why something might work and I think it is going to work, I'm way more motivated to do it. Mm. So like, I, yeah, I, I try and educate my athletes to, to at least give them some kind of understanding of why, why they're doing this or that training session or this nutrition intervention. But then you, you, you do seem to get some people who they, they don't like to think about it. They just like to have the boxes to tick and, mm-hmm. and, and just like have to, yeah. I have to just sort of yeah see it like a job and just just take the boxes. I mean, how how, how do you work that with with, with your athletes? I think, and what you said is is a very astute observation, and like I think understanding of it because I think you try to educate the athlete as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Is as you possibly can. Like you don't have to get into the mechanisms of of sheer stress and angiogenesis and and no. and all the VEGF. Just trying to explain to them, hey, this is you see see your leg there. The vasculature is a huge portion of what's going to supply your energy and what's going to remove the byproducts and have this system working well. Every time you press down that pedal, that's adding to this cumulative effect of building more of those over time (laughs) and like if you can visually go on the bike and have yourself because i i used to do this as a kid all the time like 
whenever I started understanding that the the importance of the nervous system surrounding strength training is like yeah. I would visually like organize my brain, my nervous system getting stronger <laughs> and the neural patterns getting more direct and faster. And honestly, I think that was a huge benefit to me. The way I looked at training yeah, was, was completely different. Yeah. And I was so excited. I'm like, yes, I got to build and I got to let it rest because if I don't let it rest enough, it's like just making this visual representation of like having this thing in front of you that you're trying to nurture and culture and that process of having this kind of like maternal interaction with your physiology. Yeah. Like I'm trying to cultivate this thing to do something amazing. I and mean, yeah. I think if you can pull the athlete into that perception, the more, the better, because they're intimately going to be intertwined with it. And it's going to be much harder to separate them from it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I agree. I agree. I mean, the, the only thing to like, to balance that with is is like you're saying a lot of people already have stressful lives yeah. and a lot of what they want a coach for is someone to just tell them what to do so yeah. that takes an element of stress away from them mm-hmm. so they're not thinking should i do should i could i do more should i do more should i do that should i do this yeah. should i do that and and so it's yeah it's like a a balance of of trying to educate them but then also yeah giving giving them taking some of the decision making away from them yes yes because um, i i can definitely relate to that with myself like you can you can get too much into thinking like oh am i doing too much yeah <laughs> am i doing like too little and then yeah i, I guess i guess that's when yeah you, your, your thoughts are starting to get in your way that you when, when you're overthinking what, what yeah. the right amount is because ultimately no one no one knows today if anyone if any coach pretends they're doing anything, then their best, most educated guess as to what's best for you. Yeah. Well, they're lying, aren't they? So, yeah, you're right. You've it got, is. You've got to kind of be, be zen with that as well. Because all, all you can ever do is make you make you your best, most informed guess of what's the right thing to do. I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on there. With one thing I'd, I'd be interested to hear your take on is how do you look at the model of training physiology when someone comes to you? Do you look at it as in, okay, this is traditional periodization versus we're going to be doing block periodization, or we're going to do some testing to try and understand where you're limited, or maybe it's, hey, we all need the same kind of scheme of base endurance, threshold, training distribution. How do you look at that? Like, obviously, it's going to be individualized to the person sitting in front of you, but what are yeah. kind of the models that guide your training intervention? Like, is it more so on the testing aspect? Is it more so on just kind of a, a theoretical framework of giving the athlete certain things? So, the most of the people I work race in some form or another. Mm-hmm. So I always kind of start back from like, what are the analyzing the demands of their event? Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to pin back that even more. It's like, in cycling, you've got this holy trinity, I call it, power, speed, and I know, yeah, power, aerodynamics, and weight. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the only real three variables that can manipulate the speed that you can go at. And then sort of, and then, yeah, looking at more into the physiology of the power side, yeah, physiology is, of course, integrated into weight and aerodynamics as well. But then 
kind of looking at where the athletes are and it's kind of like doing a gap analysis between like how yeah, yeah where what's going to make the most difference to improving their performance in in that event and like there might be there might be some weaknesses that could are, are you know, like do have need need to get a lot better but actually the amount of resource and time training that would need to be dedicated to improve that would be like disproportionate to like how much gains it would actually get them in that event and even sometimes they're better worth investing more time in getting even better at something they're already good at so there's it's that gap analysis between yeah the athlete and the demands of their event and then you're getting into the nuances of like the athlete's physiology their lifestyle and like like we spoke about the training they enjoy because that's incredibly important yeah and then you just sort of working it all out into how do we get them from yeah where where they are now to this version of themselves that is better prepared for their and that's yeah the rest is you show i suppose so something on there, actually, I'd be interested to hear your take on is, have you ever, have you ever heard of the ASR, anaerobic speed reserve? It's, it's pretty, you probably yes, have yeah, it's, 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 okay, it's you used have. In, in running. Yes, 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 yeah. exactly. So yeah. you have these kind of terrestrial versus aerial. So like people that are really good at, at maximal sprint speed, right? Versus yeah. the, the more aerobic phenotype that it's good as higher speeds at their VO2 max. So we all kind of have this understanding of the phenotype, the sprinter versus the, the endurance rider. And when we're looking for, let's just say, middle of the road type of race, yeah. what levers are you going to pull with the athletes? Do you train the strengths or or is it? Because I've changed my view on this, actually. And a lot of this was changed through talking with Coley. And and it's not that I changed how I trained them a lot, but I changed a lot of how I thought about it and how it actually might, certain circumstances, change my approach. So do you, how much do you train the strengths? How much do you train the weaknesses on the athlete, on the given middle of the road type of race? Yeah. How do you look at that? It, it, it depends a bit, like I said, about, how how much like by investing like training time into improving either like mm. how much return do you get for that that investment mm. so quite quite often you'll find like say someone's not got a very good sprint that sometimes it, there's there's low hanging fruit there and you just get them to do a sort of block of sprint work or some gym work mm. you get that neural drive going and then suddenly they've got an extra 100 200 watts in their sprint and that does help can even help bring everything up mm-hmm. but if, if, if it's going to need months in the gym when and just to get their sprint slightly better they're still a shit sprinter yeah. and then they've they've sacrificed lots of time they could have been building their volume more to get the threshold even higher mm-hmm. then then sometimes that's 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 the better route to go down yeah so really, i don't really have like one one size fits all model it really depends on yeah and I'd, I'd say there definitely are differences though in in how you have to coach people who are more fast or slow twitch dominant and i think yeah that the research i think it was phil bellinger did yeah. on finding how yeah slow versus fast twitch athletes respond to like overloaded periods of training i have found that in in athletes i've coached 
Mm-hmm. And I'll put my hands up and say that there was one quite fast twitch dominant athlete who I felt he was sort of the type of person that, you know, you've got people that you have to push to do more and some people you have to hold back. Yeah. And I felt he was kind of more of someone I had to push to do more. And so I was, there's times when I was trying to aggressively overload in volume retrospectively found that in the times that he'd inadvertently done slightly less and had more much steadier progressions volume he'd actually seen better improvements mm-hmm. and that's something I'm more careful with now is that with people who are more fast twitch dominant to like is well, as soon as you start seeing performance drop-offs they start yes. saying they feel tired then then like pull the plug yeah. but then then equally like that that does work well for more fast twitch dominant athletes as well, and and I think the the way researchers seem to be going now is as soon as you start seeing al- almost any like substantial decrement in performance, like you you've probably already overreached enough, mm-hmm. and, and pull the plug. Then yeah. it's just that with a a slow twitch dominant athlete, you can you can overload them more aggressively. And that their performance segment won't decrease, mm-hmm. and, and they'll be able to cope with that, and then see the super compensation effect after. Whereas with your more slow twitch dominant athletes, you have to just sort of be ever so careful about not spiking their load too much. Yeah, is, is, is that something you found people you've worked with? Or yeah, oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. And I've had like very close, depending how elite the athlete is, or how serious or dedicated the athlete is, using performance drop offs, whether it's in the weight room with barbell velocity. Yeah. I think it's super important if you're training concentric phases, where concentric phases, especially for cyclists, concentric phases are going to be super important. Training velocity drop offs for sure in the weight room, also for power drop offs, understanding the individual athlete in front of you, their power curve. Yeah is 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 super important because especially when you're trying to chase these specific adaptations you don't want to muddy the waters and start turning it into something else because it can start turning into something else pretty quickly especially like if we're talking about sprint training so understanding that power curve and this is the thing that i think a lot of people have a hard time thinking about or conceptualizing is like the research is kind of there to support this to some degree, but if you are trying to train maximal strength or maximal power, there should be zero fatigue. Like in terms yeah. of set fatigue, you might have uh, intra repetition uh, fatigue, but there yeah. should be, it should never be done. Like I should, if you're training strength, there should never be a set that's being grinded out. And that, that curve, I think is is literally if you just trained looking off of that curve for any set that you're doing high intensity or or sprint or whatever it is that you're doing for most of those things it's like it's very telling of what you're going to be pulling there so i've been a huge proponent of that for years and understanding do you have more of a type 2a athlete in front of you do you have more of a type 2a because how much that curve changes is going to be different like i've said it a million times like you will overtrain by prescribing a fast switch athlete a specific set rep scheme pretty much all the time you have to be kind of intimately unless you know the athlete you've seen their power curves and like you've gone through their data and said okay from now on we're going to stick to two or three of these instead of five it's two or three two or three really quality good reps there that's all you need 
And and when we're talking about speed and, and power and these things, less is generally always better. The way the nervous system drives these these mechanisms for for output, it doesn't take much stimulus. Like if you're maximally outputting, you're maximally outputting. And that mm -hmm. stimulus is not going to get any higher if you maximally output more because you can't possibly do it. Um, so when you're trying to progressive overload maximal, it, that's where people get into trouble. I think. How, how far have you taken minimal effective dose with your strength training then? Like, have you, do you ever get your athletes to go to the gym and do one set of three reps? And then <laughs> that's actually a really good going. question. That's a very good question. And it, and, and it really depends how much time the athlete has and how much they're, they're wanting to, because what I found is higher frequency yeah. generally always creates better adaptation. So lower interest set work, lower volume in the workload and increasing frequency always works better. Yeah. So if you can do it where an athlete is fine to go into the gym twice a day, that is money. Or if they're willing to go out and, and hit the pavement or crank the pedals twice a day, that's always better. If you can split work up, like, because we live under this kind of concept of 24 hour time frames, right? Yeah. But I don't necessarily like, I've not, not found that to be the best. I found that anytime we can keep, even keep the same volume and increase the frequency. And I think there's physiological reasons for this mechanistically is the signaling happening more times throughout the day. And I just think the recovery is much better. I think yeah. if you're splitting work up evenly or even you can even get away with less work. I found if you're splitting it up because the recovery is that much better and you can actually overload more too as well on the other side. I just think, cause I didn't get this from myself. I, I came to this from other individuals in the field that have been saying frequency, frequency for years. Yeah. And like, some of these guys are training their athletes like six, seven times a day and it's yeah. micro sessions and they're having insane results. And that's the thing is like, I'm not saying six or seven is, is optimal for everyone. And I don't mm. think that, especially with certain adaptations, it makes a lot of sense, but depending on what you're looking for, I think frequency generally is always going to improve a lot of the adaptations for most things, unless you're doing eccentrics. If you're doing something like crazy, like eccentric work where you're like literally tearing. You yeah. want to tire it as much you, as you can. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You're trying to build a more. I mean, I thought thinking about that in relation to endurance training. So I'd always thought like someone's got five hours. They say they've got five hours a week to train. Hmm. That there'd be a lot of benefit to doing that all in one ride. Because, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to be massively glycogen depleted by the end. And, and that's going to. And whereas if they're splitting that all up into five one-hour rides, mm -hmm. they're never even going to experience glycogen depletion. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, how powerful of a stimulus really is that in driving the adaptation? Yeah. And then, yeah, one thing that made me think about it was when I heard Milan saying that he, he thinks of it as each like exercise dose is kind of like like a drug, and that each time you give that dose, you get sort of bit of a stimulus and a response so if you can give a smaller stimulus more frequently potentially you can get better adaptation than just like one massive dump and then like you would have all your protein just 
like you wouldn't have it for the week <laughs> on a Sunday, would you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and expect no. to absorb it all. So yeah. it, it's kind of it's kind of like that, I, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, like if you if you study a little bit of endocrinology too, you you realize like, yeah, okay, that starts to make sense too. Like like if you just think about it, the more times you're exposing your body to a stimulus is I, I think it's going to drive a bigger it's gonna be a bigger drive for change there. It's like a large stimulus compared to a more frequent stimulus, you just think about the mechanisms there, like even for, for, for example, like tendons, like if you look into Keith Barr's work on tendons, right? Like with, with yeah. running after yeah. six minutes, generally, and it obviously is going to depend on the athlete, whoever is in front of you, but after six minutes, that stimulus is no longer being recepted. Yeah. So you're going out there and running for three, four hours. And we know that tendon adaptations are huge for, mm. for running. They're yeah. huge. They're a massive portion of how, some of these runners become to such an elite level is the stiffness and the energy return from the tendon. Yeah, they're, they're the improvement in running economy. Exactly. So if you're going out and training once a day and getting that stimulus and it's shutting off versus training three times a day or twice a day, now you're yeah. getting a tendon stimulus two to three times a day. And if you're adequate, adequately getting a reset in between there, four, four hours, five hours, six hours, at the end of a year, there's going to be two different athletes. Do you do you think cyclists would benefit more from splitting up their days then? Because it's it's obviously it's very yeah. common in running to do double and double days, but yeah, very few cyclists do. Like you never <laughs> you do a yeah. two hour ride, you wouldn't do two one hour rides. Yeah, and it, and it kind of seems to be that like sort of studies on once a day versus twice every other day will find that the twice every other day is, is better and you think like the sort of logical conclusion of that is to just do one really big ride yeah so what, what do you think there i think there's a lot of factors that play into this like what are the adaptations you're trying to gain i think there there was a study and it was in skiba's book phil skiba's book and is that it right there no, it's not. Sorry. Essentially, when he was talking about the glycogen, like they were going through the whole carbohydrate periodization talk, right? He was going through yeah. it being like, yes, for, for amateur athletes or athletes with low training loads, this can be beneficial. And these are yeah. generally going to be the people that are going to see benefit from depleted rides. But he pulled out one study, and I think it was David Bishop that did the study, or it was David Bishop talking about replicating the study, whereas they had the depleted ride, so the rider would either train the night before or train that morning and then have depletion, not refuel yeah. glycogen, and then go out and ride again. And they initially thought it was from the carbohydrate depletion that the one group was experiencing higher mitochondrial signaling for biogenesis, I think it was, mRNA signaling. But in theory, they're starting to wrap their head around. They think it, and this was in cycling, is actually because of the 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 training being split in two and the more frequent stimulus of that and that's why they're seeing the higher signaling and to me it makes sense it's like do you not think though it's it's because when you split the ride up like realistically if you do two two hour rides mm -hmm. you're probably always going to do a higher average power across those mm -hmm. two rides yeah. than you are if you just do the one long ride and then that's more kilojoules, more work done, yeah. more oxygen uptake. And that's really what's driving the adaptation. Yeah. So I, it, I could it, see that. I, I, there's yeah. a million and one reasons. I think like 
like you said, the quality aspect is a huge thing. Like if you're grinding through a session, like whether it's in the weight room, whether it's on the bike or whatever, it's like you're fo- you don't have the ability, you don't have the attention span, you don't have the cognitive resources to provide the same amount of quality. And if you can approach it with some time in between and having some some rest, the quality is generally going to be much higher, depending on your state of fatigue, right? Although with with the the glycogen depleted protocol of the yeah. you know, high intensity in the afternoon and then doing like yeah low intensity without being replenished in the morning for me it's always seemed like why the hell would you do that when you could just do like in the morning do your intervals in the beginning of a really long ride Mm -hmm. like because then like right say say you do in one five-hour ride Mm -hmm. with your intervals at the start versus two-hour ride with intervals in the evening and when intensity in the evening is probably gonna make you sleep worse anyway yeah. then going to bed realistically feeling hungry yeah. having, having a shit sleep, shit sleep. those two things <laughs> yeah then then doing like a really shit ride <laughs> the next morning but yeah you glycogen depleted when you could have just got it all done the one day before not realizing even hardly that you were glycogen depleted yeah. for me that's just a much more natural solution that's realistically going to be like yeah more easier to adhere to and no i 100 percent agree back back to the like low low carb yeah glycogen depleted work kind of my my perspective is moved from like because because i i want there to be something in it and i I quite enjoy going out and and riding on on the empty stomach or even Mm -hmm. doing yeah low carb before but Mm -hmm. Or kind of like thinking about it more it's like it and, it and it seems to be the state that you finish your training session in is more important as to like what drives the adaptation so like why would you ever do a five-hour ride glycogen depleted like not taking on any carbs when you could do a seven-hour ride taking 100 grams an hour and realistically like you're or, or close to that your actual fat oxidation at the end will probably be as high or higher. Yeah. Your glycogen depletion will be much, you'll be much more glycogen depleted and you'll have done a lot more kilojoules. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, it's very like, yeah, unless you really are time restricted, it's like, there's, I, I can't, I don't see many use cases for it. Yeah. Unless, the, yeah, you're really time restricted. You want to be able to, experience greater glycogen depletion but there'd be so many things you'd use before like if you can just get something to ride closer to lt1 like then you'll burn more fat by that because you're higher up on your fat oxidation curve yeah and and then yeah so i mean how how often like how how often would you use it or more like what what do you see the use cases of restricting someone's this is such a crazy question and it like it's it's a great question because i love the topic around it i just don't talk about it a lot because it's such a minefield for people like to be like hey i'm not a zealot here i'm just speaking on a basic subject and for some reason there's so much energy around it but i think it's a great topic because it's an important kind of factor to really understand and i i hope there's more research continuously being done like and and there's a difference for me from like what is what is the approach first being done? Is it like someone that's is the athlete in front of you 
want to do ketogenesis? Is that the kind of lifestyle that they're into? Is that like, or is it someone that's eating a balanced diet? I think all those things start to play a factor. That's kind of like the first thing out of the way is like, what is the athlete doing in terms of total nutrition? What are, yeah. what is kind of the, the landscape that they're in? I mean, just say, say your situation is you just, yeah, you've got, got a, a, an elite or amateur racing yeah. cyclist. You're trying to improve their, their physiology. Yeah. Yeah, to, to get made. Um, so I'll do two things. I'll kind of explain myself first. I love because it'll kind of ex- explain for people. I know 110% my ability to handle training volume is much lower if I'm doing more rides of the week depleted than not, right? That's just bar yeah. none. I feel my ability to resist stress load when recovered is much higher after I do, if, if more of my training is in a depleted kind of distressed state so i feel my resilience as an overall athlete is much higher i feel more robust and i and i feel yeah i feel more robust as an athlete overall with it with an athlete that comes to me it's it's very simple like i tell them if you're if you're if your training session is under 45 minutes to an hour or whatever it is and it's moderate intensity low intensity it obviously depends if it's a if it's a runner that's 45 to an hour. And if it's a cyclist, it's like anything under an hour and a half. I'm like, you don't really have to worry so much about your nutrition. If it's just accumulation of hours, like, yes, let's not make it every ride probably that you're doing under an hour and a half, but like, don't focus so much on that. Um, because the driver there is, it's not really that important when we're going to start talking about workloads that are higher or higher intensity, but kind of that longer ish, we're talking about longer rides, longer runs. I say, okay, we're a portion of these runs or a portion of these cycles, they can be done faster. So let's say like 5% or 10%, depending of your total long runs out of the, the training block can be faster. Cause I think those experiences are good, not only psychologically yeah, and there's a million and one reasons. Physiologically, you meant to, the response, like the adaptation to these is meant to be really slow. Yeah. But then on the other hand, I've found that like, because I, I did a sort of little block with it, experimenting with myself, mm-hmm. like my first training block after my offices last autumn. And and the, fir- the first ride was literally, I did, did four hours and I was just like, I'll have slightly less carbs for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. I still had like yeah. 75 grams. And then it was like, 40 grams an hour or something and by the end i was like bloody hell wiped out (laughs) and then but then like literally a month later yeah i went out and did and i think it was it was very easy that first ride was only like 190 or something um and then the last ride i did five hours with no carbs for breakfast no carbs that first ride Mm -hmm. first hour and then it was about 15 hours but i was riding it 260 as well so closer to my fat max and like to think i I couldn't there's no way that on earth i could have done that at the start of that month Mm -hmm. and so some something was changing in me that you just said based on the physiology it takes much longer to adapt Mm -hmm. so i it does seem that like there's a lot of psychological adjustment going on there yeah and and then if, if all you're getting from it is the psychological adjustment is is that something that's actually going to help you in your races where you're going to be taking on 1900 grams of carbs an hour because that's even that's not going to be something that you're uh, that you're going to expo- be exposed to in your race 
I think honestly, from the liter, I've seen this only in case studies too. Is is glucose control and pacing are fairly tightly correlated. And I, and I think I I think at the bottom line, like what you're doing when you're endurance training and what you're doing when you're riding endurance training depleted, they're literally the same thing. One is just kind of more highly enhanced, right? It's more enhanced. Mm-hmm. It's like a more enhanced stimulus, but it's also more stressful in a lot of ways. Yeah. And depending how you're fueling that, it can be slightly different. But I think glucose regulation and pacing are, are tightly correlated and, and energy is tightly correlated in that sense. Like where you see people, and I should be clear when I say this, this totally depends on the distances that you're doing. One thing that I see is athletes that even have super high training volumes, they don't, there's still athletes that come into me that train. Like I'm talking about, they have massive training volumes and they still don't have a really good ability to, to oxidize fat at lower intensities. They don't have a good ability to essentially stave off glycogen use and, and, and protect glycogen. I, I think that's an important factor. How much you're exposing your athlete to depleted training is going to change that. I think kind of depends, but I just think that distress training, like I, I got this from, from Mike T Nelson. And I think it's great. Cause I've always had this concept in my head of like, yeah, some of it does need to be distress is like yeah. what happens when you miss your gel, that's going to happen. Yeah. What happens when you miss your bottle? What happens when you miss the aid station? This happens in an athlete's career, depending on the athlete, unfortunately yeah. more than more times than people would like and sometimes well, rarely ever and i think if you just know that like hey i've actually done these types of paces or, or gone this long or blah, blah blah it doesn't really affect too much and i'm not saying that you should train depleted just for this reason i'm just saying that's one aspect but there's a million and one aspects i think psychologically like the whole rpe thing like we were talking mm-hmm. about heat training too yeah i think that's another thing with depletion yeah. I think like your, your neurotransmitters and the kind of neurological profile you, you're implementing when you're depleted and riding is different than when you're ingesting well, carbohydrates. And I think it RPE starts to shift there too. Well, yeah, because I mean, a lot of, yeah, your brain uses a lot of glucose. So a lot of what you, you're fueling, you're taking on yeah. is actually just helping to, to fuel, fuel your brain. But because actually there's like, yeah, you're fueling during the exercise. There's, there's very limited evidence actually showing that that has any ability to spare your glycogen stores. Mm-hmm. It, it's pretty sketchy that. So that's that's another kind of principle that I use to not use it as a, or, or not expect it to drive adapt, physiological adaptation that much. Because yeah. like, regardless of how much you fuel, it's going to have very minimal effect on yeah, how, how glycogen finish that yeah. session. And that's more going to be the driver adaptation. And then also, you you were saying that getting familiar with being depleted, dehydrated, mm-hmm. glycogen depleted is is something, yeah, because yeah, like to worth doing because you might miss a gel. But actually, mm-hmm. as you said, that that getting that gel or not isn't actually going to make much of a dif- any exactly. difference. How yeah. glycogen depleted you are at the end of a four hour road race, you are going to be even if you nailed your plan 100 grams of carbs an hour liter an hour you're going to be massively dehydrated you're going to be massively glycogen depleted no matter what yeah so if you've only ever done your intervals in a fresh hydrated well-fueled state like that's not going to be your race winning move for like four hours into a race so i think 
yeah, like I've, another thing that I've experimented with that myself is doing like yeah intervals at the end of a ride. Yes, and finding that that's something that trains very quickly. Just leaving like my last interval to do in the fourth hour. Yeah, and and I remember over yeah a block of, of doing that. I think in percentage terms it would have must have yeah improved about it was about seven seventy watts over so only doing it like three four times. Yeah. So yeah, it is pretty massive. But then, yeah, I think that that's that's all sort of physiological, no, psychological, psychological. adaptations that you get in there. Because yeah, actually, I, I did want to make sure we got into talking about training dehydrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heard you speak on that you know, more recent podcast about it. Because yeah. I'm I'm curious not only if if you're just training. If, if it improves your performance in dehydrated state but i also wonder whether it's actually kind of augment the stimulus mm. so like some something just just total like intuition i feel like something about the flux of of water through you and yeah. must have some kind of some kind of effect and apparently because i a guy in Loughborough was studying a PhD on this, whether it, it had an influence. But then in the middle of that PhD, he then got hired to go and work for, I think it was DSM. And so then he went off and did that. So I don't think, oh, no, I, I think it, he did finish it, but he hasn't published it yet. So yeah. that's going to be published soon. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he found there. But yeah, so certainly like when, when you consider, say like a race like the, well, this is what first got me thinking about it, like a race like the Vuelta where competing in 40 degree heat and mm -hmm. dehydration come the last climb is in inevitable. Mm -hmm. And yeah, D Dave Nichols, who he ran the, the Loughborough Cycling Academy that I was part of when I was in Loughborough, he, he gave, he would always give his presentation about how an athlete he coached. Do you, you know Ben? Do you remember Ben King winning the stages of the World Tour in 2018? No. All right. So yeah, he's a US rider. So, okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, he figured out that the amount that he was dehydrated, if he had been euhydrated going into that last climb, like all things kept constant, he'd just been that amount heavier and delivered the same power up, but he wouldn't have won the stage. Yeah. So it's then thinking. W would you actually have wanted to keep him you hydrated yeah because um, actually that i think i think he was about four kilos dehydrated he was mm -hmm. arriving arriving at that last climb so like the amount of extra power when he's riding at five six watts per kilo like four kilos is like 20 to 24 watts mm -hmm. like would being you hydrated really make that much difference mm -hmm. so yeah. Yeah, I think like becoming familiar with being dehydrated is pretty critical for for road, for road racing. Um, it's funny. I did watch that lecture now that you talk about that. It was a lecture. Yeah. I can't remember the, I don't know if it was a presentation for technology or what it was. I can't remember what it was for, but I remember watching that. I, I specifically yeah. remember the charts that he had up because they were, they were doing another kind of pre-log where they were testing athletes urine beforehand too, right? For the hydration in the morning. Yeah. 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 I remember that. Yeah. I think, I just think people like people want to, 
like just jump down your throat the second you get an idea of anything. But it's like when you think of training in various environments, right, whether it's cold, whether it's heat, we understand that even though you're physiologically prepared to compete well, when you go into this environment with this stressor or this environmental stressor, your familiarity with that is going to affect your ability to compete well. There's yeah. no question about that, whether it's heat, cold, wind, whatever it is, sun, like someone's like ability to be comfortable in those areas, having already experienced those, understanding the response differences. Mm-hmm. That's such an important factor that people just completely throw out the window. It's like, just like we were talking about di- glycogen deplete, depletion, like having athletes sprint at the end of a ride is so important. Having athletes yeah. sprint, I... I never prescribe athlete sprint depleted in, in the beginning of, of a ride or anything like that. I don't prescribe depleted like in, intervals, but I will prescribe intervals at the end of a ride because your, yeah, your ability to be well. familiar with that is super important for your performance because you know yeah. your performance over just three or four of those are going to increase dramatically. And it's not because yeah. it's a physiological factor. It's, it's through the psychology. It's just like testing. Your ability to dig deep in testing has nothing to do with like your performance on some of these tests has nothing to do with your physiology in the first little bit a lot of times for people. It's just being familiarized with it. And that's why we have those protocols and research to say, hey, we have to make sure the athlete's familiar with it because they're going to be yeah, yeah. performance. Familiarization trial. Yeah, so it's not it's no different with with dehydration or whether it's like with certain things like with CO two O two balance. Like with with fighters, I'm like, yeah, we're gonna basically almost drown you because I want you to feel what that CO two buildup is gonna be like. And yeah. you got to have the skills first to, to to be able to deal with that at a very simplistic level before we add some other guy punching you in the face and trying to strangle you on top of that like if you if you're not comfortable with that the very base level so i look at dehydration as no different i do think there may be something there and i've seen some of the research surrounding mechanism and it's hard to pull out because they weren't really measuring a ton of things on the signaling side of things but i think there may be something there but I know for a fact, psychologically, there is something there. So yeah, it's cool that you picked that up. Because I'm like, when I said that in the podcast, I figured I was just going to get a bunch of hate mail. I'm like, you're crazy. You should should be banned from coaching these types of concepts and ideas. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't like, but it's cool to hear you thinking that. Yeah, that's it. Like if you, you, yeah, if I let my mum and dad know that like, oh, it's 30 degrees outside. I'm going to try and get around on my two bottles of water. They're like, no, no, no. Yes. I was yes. like, no, I'm trying to train myself. Yeah. In yeah. A dehydrated state. Because yeah. I, I, I kind of, I took that almost too much to heart. And I would always be like, if I can finish this ride without getting, stopping for water, like <laughs> I'd yeah. always do it. Yeah. Um, and now I try to have like a sort of, more balanced perspective and think actually like have I got another big ride to do the next day so maybe on this occasion I I will actually stop for water yeah. <laughs> and then, but then it's like if, if you then got a day to recover and, and and you've got a good protocol for rehydration of your, your sodium and replacing one and a half times the fluids you've lost mm. then you'll probably be all right for your next session yeah. uh, so it's yeah it's do, knowing when to do it just just like it would be the glycogen depleted training isn't it yeah. Yeah. I just look at it as, as like, I just try to equate some amount of like time value to it because it's like, 
okay, if I'm doing this, this is essentially would be equivalent to adding another hour and a half or another whatever to the to the stimulus yeah. almost. And that's like, I just respect it for what it is. It's not something, it's, it's, a, it's a tool in the toolbox. And I think that whether it's people, I think there's a lot of nuance loss and a lot of discussion around different training concepts and different tools of training where people are like, this is what you have to do all the time. And it's like, no one's saying that. I don't no, really think many no. people are saying that this is, should be your daily practice. It's, just, it's like why uh, I really like your discussion talking about Twitter versus a podcast <laughs> and how like a, a pod, podcast is brilliant because you can actually get into all this nuance mm-hmm. and you can actually like because the reality of most things it's like maybe for someone if this but that then not when you know mm-hmm. whereas like like when Twitter is it 140 character limit did you say and yeah it, it just it's designed to like polarize people into one group or another mm-hmm. and and there's i bet the same people that would have an argument over twitter mm-hmm. if, if they sat down to have a chat like we're doing now they probably yeah. realize they had more similarities and differences yes it's crazy like i don't i don't interact at all on twitter for that reason it's like there is no way you're going to understand what i'm saying to you the reason they do yeah. it, literally the whole the whole scheme of this app was built on the design for controversy. This yeah. is why this is the billion dollar company. Yeah. And if you're going to try yeah. to communicate like that and think that it's going to be effective, other than sharing a piece of research or something like that, I just, I can't, it's not my favorite form of, of interaction. I just don't do it. Oh. Yeah. Cause I just, people, people are going to hate people regardless enough i don't like you don't want to be yeah. mis- taken in context i got uh i got another podcast with phil right after this here in the next five minutes but uh, we'll do this again for sure man like because yeah, I, there's cool, a million yeah. and one topics that we could riff off of absolutely really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on some of these things and and seeing that hearing hearing from, from kind of familiar tones around certain things like the concepts behind them and, and seeing it differently slightly from from your perspective which is nice yeah so you're you're on instagram at kilowatt coaching right so i i i've got my my personal instagram for myself and i guess my my career as a racing cyclist mm-hmm. is just marinus peterson so yeah if you want to follow my racing and my, my training and what I do personally then and following Marinus Peterson. Then my, my coaching business is, is kilowatt coaching. Kilowatt I'm not also on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. I'll I'll link to that in the show notes. I'll also link to Marinus's podcast with with Coley on the Empirical Cycling Podcast. That was a really great episode. And that's where I first come to kind of learn of of and also Coley kind of reaching out. It was it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. So I'll leave oh, that in the show notes it. as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so so hope you guys enjoy this episode and we'll catch you later.